Hey there, folks. Before we start today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, I'd just like to remind you guys that you can check out my daily sports column. It's free by going to sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. You can just check out my Twitter to find the link there. Go check out chasethomaspodcast.com. There's a link on that page. Uh, But yeah, go check it out every day. New sports story in your email inbox. Uh, Yeah, go tell a friend, share it out, send it to anyone else you think would uh, like the newsletter. But yes, every single day, go to sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Just Google Sports Renaissance Man, Chase Thomas, whatever you're most comfortable with, go do that. Uh, If you are an Apple Podcast listener, don't forget to leave this show a five-star rating and review. Uh, It's important uh, to help the show continue to grow. And last thing, uh, very quickly, but uh, please email me at chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com to... Uh, get your mailbag question in or any other questions that you might have about the show, about the column, anything like that. Uh, new mailbag columns go up every Friday. Uh, if you have any questions for the weekly shows that you would like us to answer on air, whether it's John Taylor on Wednesdays, Evan Swords on Mondays, the sports reporters on Fridays, uh, make sure to get those questions in and we'll read them on the show or I'll answer your questions in the mailbag on the newsletter. So, Go do that. Uh, again, that's chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, leave the show a five-star rating and review. Follow on Apple Podcasts if you can. Uh, I think that's it. All right. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. The Wednesday night edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast rolls along where I'm now joined by fellow Blue Wirean of Bulls HQ, a very good Chicago Bulls podcast that you should go check it out if you've not already. Mark K. No last name, just an initial. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> yeah, look, mate, I, I won't spare you the uh, the the anguish of pr- pronouncing my last name because uh, th- that's why there is no uh, further letters after the K. I'll just say that it's a it's a long uh, long Greek name, so um, I'll, I'll I'll let you avoid that one. I won't do it, but now I'm curious. How do you pronounce it? Uh, you pronounce it Karamzoulis. Okay, that sounds like a lot of lot of letters. Yeah, yeah, a lot hence, of letters. That's why I didn't put it there. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Mark, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I am so curious to get your perspective on the Bulls offseason thus far. What do you make of what the new regime led by Arturis, um has has done in re reshaping the Bulls? Yeah, look, it's been completely different to last season where they virtually did nothing. Um, they, I think they, they they made one free agency signing last year, which was Garrett Temple, whereas this year around they've basically just flipped the whole entire team, really. I mean, it, that started at the trade deadline when they brought through Nikola Vucevic, but um, all of a sudden now we've got Lonzo Ball, uh, Alex Caruso, and, and, and DeMar DeRozan as well walking through the door. So a very different and... Uh, uh, much more engaging, I think, Bulls team going forward. So com- comparing where this Bulls roster is now versus where it was 10, 12 months ago, it's, it's a completely different team. That in itself just makes it uh, a very interesting and compelling team to follow. Who the hell knows how it's going to play out? But um, nonetheless, the, the team has been revamped. The roster has been flipped over. And it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out, really. Who are you more excited about acclimating into this Bulls culture? Lonzo or... Um, Demar, probably probably Demar because I I think the fit with Demar is going to be interesting with Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic in the sense that 
in some spaces, they like to operate from the similar area on the court, I guess, from that mid-range area. Like, Vucevic is a good mid-range shooter. So is Zach Levine. Like, that's a shot that they both go to. And, you know, within their pick-and-roll uh, tandem, that like that often, you know, results in a mid-range shot for someone like Zach Levine. Ben, mm. And we know well and good at this point that someone like DeMar is a mid-range specialist. So, like, how they sort of figure all that out is going to be interesting. Whereas, say, with Lonzo, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, that's uh that fit will be quite seamless in that sense so um it's going to be interesting how how it all comes together i think it can come together but um i think initially there might be some teething problems but if it does come to come together in a way that i hope then i think it can be quite dynamic from an offensive standpoint are you more worried about the offense or the defense next season Oh, definitely, definitely the defense. Definitely the defense. Not not so much the offense. I think they'll figure it out offensively. But from a defensive standpoint, you know, when you take away Daniel Tice, Thad Young, and Garrett Temple, who were three of maybe your top four or five defenders last season, and you're sort of replacing a lot of their minutes with Patrick Williams, who's in his second year. Obviously, Demar Derozan. You're going to be relying on a full season of Vucevic at center. Um, and then behind Vucevic, you've got some inexperienced players like Tony Bradley and Marco Saminovic. So there's not a ton of defensive first guys on this roster at present. That isn't to say they can't, as a team, build a decent team defense. But, uh, you know, if you're asking me to choose which one I have more concerns over, it's it's most certainly the defense over the offense. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, DeMar and... Um, Zach Levine, it, it, like, that's just going to be a problem. There's no way around it in Vucevic at the five. But you also have Patrick Williams, who is this intriguing, high upside guy who you saw a bunch last year. Um, what is his ceiling? Like, how does he fit in with this group? Because now he is the lone young guy with this group. Like, the Wendell Carter stuff's gone. Uh, Lori Markkinen, gone. Kobe White, too small. Like, just not a league guard in this league. He's, he's back up. He'll be on, like, 17 different teams by the time his career is over but like when you look at this now with Lonzo with Levine with DeMar with Vooch how does Patrick Williams as the lone rookie factor into this how does does he still like is this going to be good for his development are you excited about this like what what do you make of Patrick Williams in year two well look before DeMar I was a bit concerned that the Bulls were going to be forcing Patrick to do a lot in the sense that you know he would have to become a a third option and, and and to become that pretty quickly and based on what we saw during his rookie season it, it didn't seem like he was ready to have that type of role but now with DeMar being in the fold and you, you know you're having a lot of your offense funneling through Levine, DeMar and, uh, and, and Vucevic then it can just allow Patrick Williams to build slowly build like build his base from a role player towards hopefully towards being a star player down the line and it just gives him i guess there's less pressure on his shoulder on his on his shoulders now i guess from an offensive standpoint to create off the ball whereas prior to demar that that, that's kind of where it was heading so in that sense it is a positive for patrick williams but what it does mean is that he's going to have to be you know huge defensively i guess so like he's i mean lonzo is a good defensive player don't get me wrong but like patrick williams next to uh demar and, and Vucevic, like he's going to have to provide a lot of help defense in that so in that perspective that and look i think he can do that like that was what he was built to be a, a decent good inside help defender more so than a perimeter guy so i think where i'm looking for patrick williams to make a lot of impact for this team is what he does defensively and then you know how that translate for the translates for the balls from an offensive standpoint but um he's still a very important piece but um maybe the scope of how important he has changed or how yeah the scope of the of his importance has changed now post the demar signing i would say 
Interesting. Um, we're going to pause real quick for a break for our sponsors, but we'll be right back to talk a little bit more bulls. All right, we're back on the Chase Hounds Podcast where I am joined by Mark K to talk all things bulls. And he is, again, the host of Bulls HQ, which is a very good Bulls podcast on the Blue Wire Network that you should go check out if you have not already. Um, to wrap up here uh, tonight, I wanted to get pick your brain because I, I know it's a little bit harsh on Kobe White, but when you look at the young guys and you look at Laurie, you look at Wendell Carter, who is now out the door, Laurie on the way out, um, Was were all three just destined not to be long-term fits here or... Um, do you like, was it the bulls inability to coach these guys up? Was it just kind of like, they were always just not really going to be those long-term, uh, franchise cornerstones. Like as someone who watched a lot of them, like, what do you make of those three and, um, where it all kind of went wrong? Yeah. So look, unfortunately for those three, um, the issue is that the most likely reality in terms of where they ultimately find themselves in the league is to be, you know, high level role players, good starters on, on specific teams. Whereas, you know, in Chicago who had just started a rebuild, uh, they were sort of forced into being a lot more than that. Like the Bulls were effectively rebuilding and trying to find a star. And I guess they found that in, in, uh, Zach Levine, but ultimately you know you need more than one star let's say so that, that guys like Lowry for example was maybe forced into a role that was too big of him same with Kobe White and, and Wendell Carter so those guys suffered from being into being put into roles that were probably a little bit too big for them too soon and because of that you know maybe the way we view them and their career in Chicago has been altered because of that perspective and similarly as well like if they grade out, grade out to be like high level role players of sorts then those types of players need support from others. They need someone else to create their offense for them, and specifically for someone like Larry Markin and Wendell Carter, two bigs who rely on the offensive creation of others to get them scores. Like the Bulls just haven't really given them any uh, backcourt play, let's say, from a, a pure playmaking uh, perspective to sort of help these guys. I guess, grow and find themselves within the NBA. So a lot of it is on the fact that the Bulls didn't really support these guys when they came through, put them in roles that they weren't ready for. And because of that as well, that didn't really, uh, you know, put, put their best foot forward in terms of giving them a chance to put, to be their best versions of themselves. So I think it's largely on the Bulls fault. Um, I expect someone like Larry to go to a different situation and to look better than what he did in Chicago. But ultimately you know these guys are probably going to grade out as good players good role players they can help a team but uh it just it just wasn't going to work in chicago true or false you're going to look like a clairvoyant mark hey or you you won't with this true or false the bulls end up do getting a first for lori markinen mm, I, I want to say it's true <laughs> that that would be nice uh Look, they have the, they have the leverage. So Lowry is a restricted free agent. There's virtually no teams out there that have cap space. Um, it's going to have to happen via a sign and trade. The Bulls have made it clear that they don't want to take on salary. They want a first round pick for Lowry. So in that sense, they are strong arming the situation. We'll see how it obviously plays out. It, it's dragging out here. I mean, free agency opened a number of days ago now. So in that sense. I would say based on their leverage that they should be able to get some sort of pick now, whether it's a heavily protected first round pick or a pick, you know, deep into the future that, that again has protections on it. Um, I think that's, I think that's possible. So I will go on record and say they get a first round pick. I I doubt it will be a a good one or a, you know, one that will be sought after, but um, I think it's possible that they do get one. 
Interesting. Interesting. Um, last question, and we'll wrap up here, Mark. Um, the Bulls next year. Where do you where do you see them as? Are they a top five ish team in the East, or are they a team flirting with the play in seven, eight, nine spot? Yeah, look, I think they can be if things break right. Like if, if DeMar, Levine, Vucevic, etc. find their way on offense, like they find that combination on offense, if they can figure out a way to be at least an average defense, uh, I think they have the talent to be, you know, around that sort of four to six range. And, you know, teams like, you know, clearly Brooklyn is, is, is you know, leaps above everyone else. I would expect the Bucks to sort of fall into the second seed in the East as well. Then I, I would imagine Miami sitting, sitting, uh, sitting in that top three as well. And then thereafter, I guess it's kind of open for that fourth seed. Like the Sixers haven't really done much in the offseason. They've got the Ben Simmons question looming over that franchise. You've got the Hawks who obviously went to the conference finals. Can they repeat that again? But then you've got teams like Boston, Chicago, New York, these sorts of teams where I, I kind of feel like they're all similarly placed. And depending on how it all breaks out, then maybe they can sort of sneak into that four or five or six seed sort of thing. So I think the Bulls have a realistic path to being there. It, it, it just really depends on one, well, one health, um, but two, how it all comes together. So it's uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how it plays out. All right. What can we check out from you across Bulls HQ this week? Mate, look, I've got some podcasts to, if people want to catch up on Bulls HQ, like uh, going over the DeMar signing. We had a DeMar episode, the, the Lonzo and Caruso signings. We had an episode on that as well. We've also got an episode coming up uh, pretty soon on where things stand with Larry Markin and our thoughts on the Summer League that is going on right now. The Bulls have played two Summer League games, so we'll get into that as well as just um, you know discussing, discussing this tampering issue that's sort of looming with the Bulls in the background as well. So uh, that'll be dropping in all the usual spots very soon. There you go. Mark, you got the great work. Thank you so much for making the time. Uh, we'll check back in again soon. No worries, Chase. Thanks for having me, mate. All right. Hello, and welcome back to the Wednesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined... My first timer, 99, the games, Mike Conti, who's also the radio play-by-play host of the Atlanta United Football Club. Mike, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Hey, Chase. Good talking to you. How are you? I am pretty good. Um, it's kind of fun to be covering a soccer club that uh, is on the upswing for the first time in what feels like three years. It does feel like it's been a while, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it's a tall mountain to climb and Atlanta United still kind of at the base of it right now. They have a lot of things they still need to figure out, but I do agree with you. I think things are moving in a positive direction. I think you can say that objectively. And I think that's, that's been the case really for the last couple of weeks. And you're starting to see the results on the pitch come around. And when you add the fact that they've added a, a really attractive attacking player in Luis Alarujo, uh, you have to think that, with all of these home matches coming up for Atlanta United, if if they're going to go on a run and try to sneak into the playoffs, it's going to start right about now. Are you surprised Rob Valentino is not going to get a a more serious look as the long-term coach here? No, although I think he deserves it. uh, But I think he kind of knew the deal coming into it. I think Darren Eels and Carlos Bocanegra were, were pretty transparent when they fired Gabrielle Heinze, that they were going to try to install a permanent head coach as quickly as possible because they felt there was enough time left in this season to make a playoff run. 
you still have a little less than half the season remaining. Um, if they can find a head coach that they believe uh, is the person that they want to build the, the club around, there's no sense in waiting to make that move. You might as well make it now. And I think Rob Valentino will have a role on the coaching staff of whoever the new head coach ends up being. I, I, Rob's done a terrific job. It's been unbelievable. I think he's the real deal. I really mean that. I, I've gotten a, a chance to spend some time around him and the team, and it's very obvious the players love and respect him. Very obvious that he's getting a lot out of these players. It's been a very good relationship. Rob's job in the post Heinze era was to kind of restore some positivity in the dressing room, and he did it. Mission accomplished. And now I think he's going to have a very important role helping the new head coach keep things on the rail uh, and help make the transition go as smoothly as possible. Why, based on facts alone, why did the Gabriel Hines um, managerial time in Atlanta, why did it Why did it end? so abruptly uh it be it, it just it seems like there was a disconnect between him and the players and Heinze was an excellent coach I don't think anyone with Atlanta United would dispute that in fact a lot of people with the club have told me that they were really impressed with the way that he thought about tactics the way he thought about positioning and that he is a, a good coach but unfortunately he just did not have a good feel for the day club and in major league soccer there's a lot more that goes into a head coach's job than just coaching the team you have to be accessible to club staff you have to be accessible to media uh you have to understand the concerns of your players as professionals Heinze fell short in those areas uh and atlanta united and the front office made a determination that before this got too far down the road and things became irreparable it was better to, to make the change and move on before it was too late. Hmm. So who do you who do you suspect they go? Like it like we to find I mean, I'm sure Atlanta United fans all they, they ask about is like who's the next Tata? Like that's all they want. They want the next Tata, they want the next guy to be there for the foreseeable future, somebody the fans can latch on to, believe in, obviously win with, but based on what you saw from Gabrielle, like what uh, where are they gonna flip to now? Are they gonna flip to stick kind of with what's happening and why they're succeeding as of late with just kind of the more positive, less stringent coaching style of Rob Valentino? Or do you think they still go for a more proven veteran name that might be, or like, what What do you make of what their search is going to look like or is looking yeah. like right now? No, I, I, I understand, Chase. I, I actually think the answer is neither. Hmm. I think where they're looking to go now uh, is someone who has familiarity and the willingness to be flexible with the kind of odd intricacies of Major League Soccer. And this is something that Darren Eel spoke about earlier in the week. Um, I'm not sure they're looking for the next Tata because there might not be a coach out there in the world uh, who appreciates that in MLS you're going to have to play in different time zones. Some matches you're going to play on grass. Some matches you're going to play on an artificial surface. There is a salary cap. There is a playoff. Uh, there are roster limits. Uh, you don't have a blank check as you do in many parts of the world to go out and do whatever you want from a roster standpoint. It's hard to remake a roster based on what the coach wants the roster to be. You need to find a coach who's going to be flexible and be willing to adapt with the way MLS works. Uh, that 
that means you can still get a very good coach, but it might be someone who has MLS experience. It might be someone um, who comes from North America as opposed to someone who comes from Europe or South America. Atlanta United has always been very ambitious. And I think you saw that ambition at the, the close of the international transfer window when they cut a big check to bring in a player like Luis Arrugio. Uh, you see it in their ambition going out and finding players like Ezekiel Barco, like Marcelino Moreno, like Alan Franco, like Santiago Sosa. Um, just because they hire a coach that is not necessarily a quote-unquote big name from Europe doesn't mean that the club isn't ambitious. But I, I think five years into the Atlanta United experience now, the club's in a different position where now it's becoming more important to be competitive and win MLS matches, and maybe you have to throttle back a little bit on on making all of these uh, splashy moves to try to to uh, call attention on yourself uh, on a worldwide basis. Atlanta United's on a firm enough footing now where a non-flashy hire might be the right way to go. If you can find someone who can take this group, group of good players, and I think we've seen in recent matches that that this is a good group, that they're playing well. Take this group and do what it takes with this group to win at MLS. That needs to be the ambition right now. And I think the the head coach hiring is going to reflect that ambition. Do you have a name that you would peg as a favorite right now? No. no <laughs> they, they, they don't tell me how to call games, and I don't tell them which coaches to hire. So it, believe me, they, there are... Many, many smart people in the room who are uh, deliberating on this right now. And the last person whose opinion they need to hear is mine. I'm sure what they do will end up being a good hire. I think they've, they've learned from some of the mistakes, unfortunately, that they made with Gabrielle Heinze. And I'd just point out, every managerial hire they've made up to this point, aside from Heinze, and again, not disputing that Heinze was a good coach, he just was not a good day-to-day manager at the club, Every coach they've hired has been a good one. Tata Martino was a great coach. Frank DeBoer was a great coach. Won two trophies. Very nearly won MLS Cup in 2019. If Joseph Martinez doesn't get hurt at the, the start of the 2020 season, Frank might still be the coach right now. Stephen Glass had to step in in a very difficult position in the, the middle of a pandemic. Um, he did not have a full-strength roster. He did not have his designated players. But Glass, he's a good coach, too and is thriving now in Scotland. So this front office has a track record of hiring good coaches. And um, uh, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, they've been able to do that without my input. So I I think it's going to be the same this time around. Does it feel the same in the building as it felt two to three years ago, from what you can tell? In what way? The fan aspect. Because like I tell people who are not from Atlanta where... I am like, no, the, the best game day experience of the big four is Atlanta United. Like that is the, the best game day experience. If you were just looking to experience the perfect Atlanta sports game, it's an Atlanta United game. And it was crazy. And then the pandemic happened and then we've opened up a little bit and now it's fully open and all that. But like, is the atmosphere back to what it was two and a half years ago, even if the club has struggled the way it has? Um, I mean, I think I think at times it's been back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think back to that Montreal game where Marcelino Moreno scored at the very end. Mm-hmm. That was about as loud as I, I think I've heard that stadium 
since I started doing games. So, I mean, that was a moment where it felt like that that vibe, that atmosphere was back. Uh, I think there have been moments. I, I don't think it's been consistent, but I don't think it's been consistent in anything in sports since March of 2020. Um, you know, I noticed at Hawks games, certainly in the playoffs, that there was a vibe in State Farm Arena that hasn't really existed maybe in the last 10 or 15 years. But again, it was in moments. It was in playoff games when the Hawks finally had the opportunity to, to open the building up 100%. So um, I don't think the change in the atmosphere is a reflection of anything with the way the club's playing or anything like that. I think it's just a reality of we're still kind of fighting our way through, hopefully, the end of the pandemic. And nothing's going to feel 100% normal until COVID is gone, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I say that as someone who's been to Braves games, Hawks games, Falcons games, and Atlanta United games since all of this started last March. Uh, There are moments where it feels normal, but it doesn't feel normal all the time. Are you surprised Joseph Martinez looks like he is going to stay with this club long-term now? No, not at all. Joseph's a club man through and through, and I I think Joseph, through the experiences that he has had in other parts of the world, especially in Italy, I think Joseph really deeply appreciates how beloved he is by the city and by the fans of Atlanta United. Uh, and I, I expect Joseph's going to be here for life. I think he's made that very clear when he said so in English a couple weeks ago that uh, he wants to retire in Atlanta. He wants to be here the rest of his life. I think he really means that because he's played for big clubs in Italy and it hasn't worked out for him. Um, Joseph really has embraced playing in MLS. I mean, it takes a unique soccer personality to embrace wanting to play in MLS and wanting to wrap up your career in MLS, and I think Joseph fits that profile. But you really see it in Joseph's eyes. Uh, he really does get a lot out of the fan interaction. He really does enjoy uh, and respect um, the response that he gets when he's out in public, when he's playing. He, he loves Atlanta, and uh, he's one of those people, and, and I you know, we could probably talk about former Falcons, former Braves, former Hawks who feel this way too. He's one of those people who I, I think would live in Atlanta uh, long after his career was over, that, that he truly wants to make this city his home. The Ray Buchanan of Atlanta United is what you're saying. <laughs> I don't, well, yeah, I don't know about that. But, I mean, if you think about it, there's... Uh, no, I just joke because I, I made that joke because yeah, I, I swear I've, every Hawks game I've ever been to, I've spotted Ray Buchanan. It's like a running joke where yeah, I see him all the time. That's interesting. It, I, I, would, I would compare it more to Dominique Wilkins. Mm. Uh, you know, Dominique's not from here originally, although he's been here a very long time. Mm-hmm. Had a really successful playing career with the Hawks. Really is a local legend as a result. And chose to make Atlanta his home. And he'll never leave. I doubt it. I doubt he'll ever leave. Uh, because he truly feels the love that this city has for him. And I think Joseph's the same way. Do you think Ezekiel Barco's wired that way? Or do you think it, the time is ticking on his Atlanta tenure? I, I think Barco, yeah, I, I, Chase, I think Barco's aspirations are a little bit different. Barco's so young, yeah. and I think he has aspirations to play in Europe. And I think, uh, you know, if he has the good fortune of staying healthy, he's going to be able to put himself in a position where he'll be able to make that jump to Europe pretty soon. You know, Joseph 
Joseph's at a different point of his career. He's done the Europe thing already. Uh, Barco, I think, was pretty clear when Atlanta United signed him in 2018. I even remember his introductory press conference. Yes, he wants to help Atlanta United win, but in helping Atlanta United win, he's going to help himself get to a big club in Europe. And I think that time is coming. Because Barco played so well at the U19 World Cup in 2019. He played so well at the Olympics this year. Uh, he he continues to play well in MLS when he is healthy, and that is the key, when he is healthy, uh, that his value is going to increase to a point where Atlanta United is going to be able to uh, accomplish their business objectives with Barco and be able to, to move him on to a bigger club in Europe for a profit. Hmm. Um. When you look at the rest of the season, right now they sit minus four point differential, 18 points total. They're 10th in the Eastern Conference. Do you see this team being able to make a playoff run and that they have figured enough out that they can make it work with uh, what they have going forward? Well, it's going to be tough. Uh, they definitely, like I said at the beginning of the interview, I mean, they've, they've put themselves at the bottom of a pretty steep hill. And it's going to be tough to climb it. Can they get there? Uh, six of their next seven matches are at home. Ten of their next 14 matches are at home. Their schedule is not as daunting as it was in the first half of the season when they had to play at Seattle, when they had to play New England twice. Uh, those matches are in the rearview mirror now. So if they can stay healthy, if they can continue to execute at the level at which they've executed in, in their two most recent matches – Yes, I think it's possible, but the margin for error right now is very, very slender. And things that can affect that margin for error are sometimes things that are out of their control, and that includes injuries. So if Atlanta United stays healthy, with all those home matches coming up, I I think they're going to be well-positioned. But there is no margin for error, and they cannot afford to have too many more draws or losses at home. Uh, if they end up winning all 10 of their remaining home matches, that's 30 more points that gets them to 48. They're going to be in the playoffs. Um, if they don't win all 10 of their remaining home matches, then they're going to have to start picking up points on the road. And they've only won once on the road in MLS this year. So it would be a little bit against their form to do that. So do I think they can do it? Yes. But they have very little margin for error now, unfortunately. The hardest thing for you calling soccer games is what? Oh, um, that's a good question. The hardest thing for me, I think, is to... Oh, boy. Um, My job... I'm going to answer this a different way. I hope you don't mind, Chase. I Mm -hmm. feel like my job describing a soccer game is to allow the listener to see the match through my eyes, understand the way that the match and the ball is moving uh, while being unable to actually see it and uh, understand the major events of the match as it is happening. And at the end of the match, feel about the match the same way as I do. Um, So that's my job. And I, I think, the hardest part sometimes is to look at the match from a broader perspective rather than each individual moment and, and being too specific. 
think sometimes it's hard to be so specific and so descriptive that often you miss a bigger thing that might be occurring um, in the context of the whole match. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like when, when Joseph Martinez scored his first goal of the year down in Miami, I was so consumed with describing Joseph's goal and how it happened that I completely missed or disregarded the fact that Joseph, after he scored, he ran off the pitch to hug Mario, the trainer, who helped him through his rehab with his toward ACL, which really was far more important than the individual moment of him scoring. So I think that's the biggest challenge. Sometimes I, th- I think I get too consumed in giving every little detail and forgetting that there are bigger things in play than just, well, he kicked that uh, off the back of his heel or you know, that cross was an outswinger, that cross was an inswinger. Uh, that, I think, is the biggest challenge. And quite honestly, I think, you know, another big challenge is just trying to keep my emotions in check. I'm very passionate. I love the team. I want them to win. Sometimes it's easy to, to over-celebrate or get overly frustrated. Um, so I feel like I, I've tried my best to work on that over the last four years, but I, I still have more work to do from that standpoint. Well, more power to you, Mike, because I could not do your job. You you have a job that I can absolutely not do, and you have the voice for it. I love listening to you when uh, Man United's playing, and I am not around because they play at weird times sometimes. And I just, I'm driving around, and I'm one of those well, I'm one of those people who very much enjoys uh, listening to Atlanta United and the Braves too on the radio. It's it's very soothing. So I appreciate your work, sir. And also, I just think that soccer and hockey is just another level of calling games than baseball, basketball, and football for me. I, I, I just think it's significantly yeah. diffi- more uh, difficult. Yeah, I, I mean, hockey is by far the hardest sport to describe on the radio. I, I've done all the sports you mentioned on the radio. Hockey mm-hmm. is by far the hardest yeah. because the, the game just moves so much faster than, than any of the others. Uh, I don't know how people do the it. players are on skates. I don't know either. It takes a really special talent and skill. If you can call ace hockey, you can call anything. I, feel I would like agree with the, that. I, I feel like the principles of ice hockey and soccer are similar uh, because uh, hockey teams and soccer teams are trying to do the same thing, which is to put an object into a net, and the value of a goal is very important. So I, I find myself in many ways calling a soccer match in a very similar way to a hockey game, but um, I, I feel like if you can call ice hockey, you can call every, anything. And I really do appreciate your your compliment, Chase. And I, I bet you could do it if you worked with a partner as good as Jason Longshore. To me, he's the key. Uh, Jason teaches me. He um, he keeps things in perspective. He He's very cerebral, very thoughtful, and he understands the game in a way that I will never understand it. So when you have the luxury of working with someone as good as Jason, you can do anything. Uh, so if you got a chance to call a match with Jason, I think you would find it to be very, very there you go. There you go. Also been on the pod, Jason Longshore. He's great. So, Mike, great. thank you so much. Uh, what can we check out from you this week across 99 The Game? Well, uh, Atlanta United against LAFC, Sunday at 4 o'clock. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll be looking forward to that. It's going to be a busy seven days for Atlanta United. They'll play Sunday and again on Wednesday and then again on the road the following Saturday. So uh, three matches in seven days is going to be a tough assignment. And at some point, I would think between now and the end of that stretch, we'll uh, we'll have some information on Atlanta United's new coach. There you go. I'm excited. I'm excited. No pressure to get this one right or anything. There's there's absolutely no pressure. <laughs> right. Um, well, there you go, Mike. Keep up the great work, sir. Stay safe out there. 
and uh, let's uh, let's talk again soon. Sounds good, Chief. It's my pleasure. Welcome back to the Wednesday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am joined, as I am every single Wednesday, by the great Fangraphs, John Taylor. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? For a minute there, I thought you were going to say that you were being joined by the great Fangraphs. Mm. I mean, I that's also like true. Like a Wizard of Oz thing, where you're just talking to a person behind the curtain who just keeps yelling F-war and WOBA. <sighs> Who is the person? Is it Meg Rowley? Is it Ben Lindbergh? I don't know. Is it... I, I kind of want it to be Meg because okay. um, I found that funny. She should just be yelling. She'd just be yelling from, I guess, Phoenix. But, yeah. I don't imagine her as much of a yelling type. No, Meg's not really a yeller. Mm-hmm. Meg's not a yeller. Meg's nice. Meg's a good person. I, uh, her, like, the Effectively Wild podcast is one where, like, John, how do you listen to other shows? Do you do 1.5 or do you do the normal one? I do the normal. I, I, I understand the 1.5 thing. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I prefer normal. 1.5, I just, the, the sound of someone's voice sped up just kind of weirds me out. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you, but I will sometimes, if I'm in a time crunch and I have to get through some stuff, I'll speed it up and effectively loud is one of those because they're longer shows. However, yeah, it's funny because neither of those two people talk in any sort of uh, speedy ways, I would say. They're not uh, fast talkers, so it's just very funny to listen to Ben and Meg sped up because it's very, very alarming and very baffling because it's just so, uh, so very much not possible in <laughs> reality. Yeah, it's it's very funny too, especially because I can imagine like, yes, yeah, Ben is a very deliberate speaker, but I can imagine him sped up. All those pauses that are supposed to be deliberate are now just gone. Mm-hmm. I, I actually I kind now I kind of want to hear what they sound like sped up, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna investigate that. There you go, um, John. We did not talk so on the Sunday Night Baseball show. We talked about the Red Sox because they had been free falling, lost two of their last. Uh, they'd won two of their last ten before that. Um, your state of the Red Sox is the. Free falling Red Sox still going. Like, is this uh, where are you at? Uh, it's not good. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think we already talked about this post deadline that it's not mm. really surprised that you took a team that needed help and you didn't do anything, and this is the result. Um, that's the thing. Like, I, I, I no, not, this doesn't necessarily. It surprised me in that. I thought the Red Sox were better than this, but the problem they've run into is that all the problem, all the, the problem they've run into is problems. The problem they've run into is that both the weakest link in the chain has broken, which is to say that the starting rotation is just as predicted come apart. Mm. And that domino has resulted in the bullpen being overused, and you've seen that in Matt Barnes struggling of late. He's blown his last two saves, which really not great timing. Uh, on top of that, the lineup, which has kind of been or not has kind of been but has been obviously a very big or you know very big reason why the Red Sox have been doing so well with such a great offense uh, a good chunk of that lineup is slumping I believe Xander Bogart's hurt to some degree and I don't think it really helps that again you had at least two spots in that lineup that were visible need upgrade needs first base and second base offensively and this team did nothing at the same time as they didn't get any 
they didn't get any pitching help aside from Hansel Robles, who was the literal opposite of pitching help. So I'm not surprised at coming off a bad deadline that this um, that the Red Sox are where they are. They really didn't need that help. They really didn't need the reinforcements. They didn't get them, and now they're screwed. I mean, now it's all on Chris Sale's surgically rebuilt elbow. Not at all worrying to me. Yeah. Well, you got a big series coming up this week, correct, with Tampa Bay, starting uh, uh, tonight with Nate Nivaldi on the mound? Yes. We are currently amid that series where the Red Sox have already lost twice. <laughs> good times. I mean, Love it. It, it's not good. It's not good. And it's also it's not just... good. It's really bad. The only good thing about it is that the rest of the East is... The, the rest of these teams, while, while dangerous, are also equally flawed. You know, the Yankees are amid their own thing where everyone has COVID all the time. Mm. The Blue Jays don't have pitching either beyond uh, Robbie Ray and Jose Barrios. And the Rays have no pitching to speak of whatsoever. I'm still really unsure how they're doing this. It's honestly very frustrating. Josh Fleming. People forget. Um yeah, no, it's it's weird, but the AL East is just, uh, I don't know. It's also just like the Red Sox are one of those teams where long seasons just cloud how, like, it just, it clouds how we think about different teams. Because, like, if they had been at this point, like, the way they got to this record, I imagine if you're a Boston fan, is very frustrating. But, like, before the season, no one saw them even being close to this good. But because of the hot start and being way out in front of the AL East and overperforming, uh, which is what this starting pitching group should have been able to do, it raised the bar and got fans a little bit excited. And now, with reality setting in a little bit, it's more frustrating because you you have those May, June, April memories, and you're like, oh, this is uh, this is what we were. Now we've regressed to the mean. Regressing to the mean mid season just uh, I think it's a really frustrating thing. Yeah, and I think that's part of. It. I mean. I'm sure there is some regression there with regards, especially to the rotation, a lot of those guys coming back to earth. But at the same time, this was a team that was, by at least run differential, but come by their their record, honestly. And I think even more than regression to the mean, what we're talking about is there's a lot of stuff going there like, Garrett Richards is clearly not the same pitcher post-sticky stuff ban. And honestly, I don't think Nick Pavetta is either. And I think that's probably true for seemingly everyone in the rotation besides Yavaldi and Eduardo Rodriguez, who's run into his own issues. Yeah, for me, it feels like less about regression than mean, more than just a bunch of particular dominoes fell in one direction and there was no attempt made to stop them from falling. Because, again, these were all predictable, expected, or predictable outcomes, at least, that, yes, this pitching staff is going to run into problems at some point because this is five number three guys at best. Mm -hmm. Or maybe this lineup, which relies effectively on four dudes, should have a little extra depth added to it, particularly at positions where they're basically automatic outs right now at second and first base. And maybe this bullpen could use one more useful arm that isn't Hansel Robles in order to make sure we don't burn our, we don't wear our closer down to a nub by the middle of August. But, and I guess the thing, like I can, I, I can imagine that Heim Bloom and the Red Sox front office knew all these things. Why they didn't do anything about them, be it the cost or or whatever, is just the part that remains the most confusing thing to me. Well, no, I wasn't really saying about the meme with the actual play. I'm saying mean of like what we thought coming into the year with our predictions, like them slithering back to where we thought they were. We're like, maybe if things break the right way, they're a wild card team or whatever. But and we were kind of surprised at Zip's projections and Picota projections for this Red Sox team. And mm -hmm. that's more of what I'm saying is that just like the preseason expectations 
um, shifted based on how they played the first three months of the season. And now they're back to where we thought they'd be, but you got the taste. It wasn't like they were playing this kind of baseball all year. You got a different version of this Red Sox team early on um, that just uh, was not going to be the case for a full season. Yeah, and that's true. And I, I don't know. I, it's it, To me, it's just what's gone on with the Red Sox feels predictable, and that's kind of the most frustrating part of it all, is that this really could have been to a certain degree avoided, but the front office decided it did not want to do what it costs to avoid it. Can I interest you in a Kavon Smith? No, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad he's out of my life. Travis Darno. Love Travis Darno. He's back in the Braves yes. lineup this week, so very excited about that. Him coming back. Uh, Yaskar and Noah signing, uh, citing, excuse me, this week. So it looks like maybe that's coming back soon. Uh, very excited. Exciting. All kinds of optimism. It would be nice if there was this man named Ronald Acuna Jr. still in the lineup, but um, we cannot have everything. John, um, Fangraphs, the site you're very familiar with. Um, yes. There's a piece going with um, the risers and fallers, and like this, I forget. I forgot the actual title from this particular piece from yesterday, but um, it went into detail about different pitchers have gotten hot in the month of July. I didn't realize that this pitcher, because we just talked about the Yankees and like the Andrew Haney's and uh, Gerkel obviously missing for the aisle and COVID. And like you think about the rotation and just the struggles there, Montgomery's been okay. Um, but per Fangrass, quote, guess who had the second lowest ERA? In the month of July, across the majors, Jamison Talon, his 1.16 ERA came with a 20.5 K percentage, 0.97 WHIP, and a 3.46 FIP. Mm. John, I pose yes. the question to you: Is this a new era for Jamison, and did the Yankees have something here long term? Uh, I think it's definitely new for Tyon, and I think a lot of what he was dealing with before, he had a lot of tough, uh, tough opponents, and I think obviously he was getting used to, you know, I mean, I don't know what necessarily the Yankees have worked with him post-Pittsburgh in terms of what they wanted to do with him, but I have to imagine he was just working through a lot of, hey, let's let's work through some stuff and figure out what we can do for you. And I think the biggest thing you're seeing at this point with Tyon is that he has changed up the pitch mix uh, a bit since pretty much since the season started. And I just want to I, I just want to pull that up because it's really it's, it's fascinating to me like what he's done in particular with uh, the slider that he has pretty much swapped using his slider and he was using his slider a ton at the start of the season, just over 30 percent. That's now down well below 20, well below the league average, too, of how much a curveball or sliders is. Now we're down now to 17%. The curveball started the season at 23%. Now he's throwing about 19% of the time, but he's also throwing it way more than the slider. So, or he's, he's now throwing the slider, or sorry, throwing the curveball more than the slider. And I think that's making a pretty big difference because that slider has been pretty hard to hit, I feel like. Or sorry, that slider, that curveball. And I feel like the slider for Tyon just wasn't working particularly well. I mean, you look at the you look at the results on those numbers. Slider has this season a batting average against of 312, a slugging percentage against of 527, a whiff rate of just 19.9%. Go up to the curveball, 253 batting average against 316 slugging percentage against with peripherals that suggest that's legit if not actually a little unlucky and a whiff rate of 27.8%. So, 
I think that makes sense to me that he is going for something. And then you look at the the shape of those pitches. That curveball obviously has uh, way more movement both vertically and horizontally than that slider. It has a lot of drop. It has a lot of movement across the zone. I think opposing batters are just having a hard time squaring it up, I would imagine, or getting a hand on it to see the whiff rate for it in particular. Um, and that whiff rate is about what he was running last year. So it, it's been an effective pitch for him in the past. I think the difference is he's throwing a little more throwing the slider a little more. The other thing is he has junked his sinker completely. And that, the sinker is primarily a, I believe that that was a Pirates invention. It never works for anybody. He is throwing it, he threw it 20% of the time last year, and it was okay. He had a Wobe of 293. It's fine, but an expected Wobe of 354. This year, just throwing it 5% of the time. Very rarely offering it. He has pretty much a fastball, curveball, then slider pitcher at this point. Last year, he was... Slider first, then fastball, then sinker. But that's the other thing. He's gone very heavy with the fastball. He's gone very good results with it. A 203 batting average against, a 392 slugging percentage, a 28% whiff percentage. Uh, and that fastball itself has changed a lot from last year. It's got a lot more vertical movement. It's got a lot less horizontal movement. He is moving it more. He's pitching. What I, what I imagine Tyon is doing is pitching more up in the strike zone with that fastball than he is moving it around within it and making it harder for batters to catch up to it. Obviously, a fastball high up in the zone is much harder to make contact with. And that does that does feel like the Yankees, like a very Yankees idea. It's like, put your fastball up in the zone, then finish it off. I imagine it was first with the slider, but now they've changed its course and gone to the curveball. And I think that's probably made the biggest difference, is letting Tyon uh, change over to a pitch that he feels more comfortable with. Um, excuse me, that he feels more comfortable with in terms of just using it, or not even as more comfortable with, but just getting the fastball out there more often, using it to, to set up the curveball, and going to the curveball instead of the slider is his main secondary. Hmm. Interesting. So, is he the most interesting not Garrett Cole pitcher to forecast over the next year in New York, or is it Montgomery? Is it Zaney? Is it uh, that I think it's, I think it's, Lung- I think it's Let me see if I can do this. Let me see. Jonathan Long... I, I nailed it. Five ago. Mm-hmm what what john said yeah i i still think it's probably tyon because he has the most i think the highest ceiling of anyone here i mean i think the, the thing you worry with tyon is he turns 30 in november he's had two elbow surgeries um there's not a lot you can't really count on him i don't think to be a durable guy in the rotation going forward uh of course the nice thing is like you said he is around for next year he does give the yankees kind of a, a relatively affordable starter to plug into i guess now the middle near top of their rotation because he's only under contract. He's already eligible next year, but he's making just $2.25 million this year, so I have to imagine is is he'll get a raise next year, but it's not going to be a huge one. So, yeah, I, I think it, I think it's probably um, Tyon right now because he has shown that number one potential in the past, and he's showing it again right now in this back half of the season. I like Montgomery a lot. Um, he has looked very good this year coming, off Tom, coming now fully off Tommy John surgery in his first full season post-rehab. Um, I like that he's, you know, he's got a lot of strikeouts. He avoids hard contact. He's, you know, the peripherals love his numbers too. But for me right now, it, it, it's Tyon. I think I just, I like his stuff a little more. But between Tyon and Montgomery, especially, they have two, the Yankees have two cheap back of the rotation options. And Loisica, between those three, they've pretty much filled out the back of their rotation now, I feel like, for 2023, 20, depending on whether or not they want to use Loisica as a, 
as a starter as opposed to a reliever. And even if they don't, between Tyon, Montgomery, and whatever they get out of Domingo Herman next year, that's three set starters in the rotation that you can, like I said, you can set it and forget it. And Cole, that's, you know, that's four. So really, the Yankees have, thanks to, I think, at least starting to figure out Tyon, have now made next this, this coming offseason that much easier for them, where they can go into it saying, hey, we already have four starters under contract in... Herman Montgomery, Tyon, and Cole, who we feel good about. Uh, maybe we re-sign in Corey Kluber if he comes back healthy. Maybe we leave that spot open for a Davey Garcia or a Clark Schmidt or a Michael King or, you know, or, or, or Luis Gill, who's, who's been fantastic in his first two starts, or, shit, maybe even a Nestor Cortez Jr. Um, they have options now, and I think, that, I think that's been the big thing about Tyon. It's not just what he can do this year, but it also gives the Yankees that confidence for next year, hey, we don't have to buy two starters in free agency. We can, we can maybe get one, or we can trade for someone. But we have a rotation that's already four fifths full, assuming nobody gets hurt with guys that we feel pretty good about. Hmm. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, it's always, but I don't know. I guess he's not really young, so we don't have to worry about it too much in terms of Yankees developing pitching. But do we do we count this as a, a win for the? the the Yankees as a franchise that has I'm just gonna go ahead and be nice here uh struggled to develop pitching um does this count as a win for them or no I think it's a win I think turning Ty on into a useful major league starter is a win that's all I think they really wanted out of him I think the Mm. obviously the the 99th percentile outcome would have been they turned Ty on into the top draft pick he was um, when the Pirates selected him back in whenever that was six or seven years ago Mm. longer eight I think um, but I think just having a pitcher you can count on middle of the rotation, I think counts as a success because the Yankees, I mean, consider what they had pre tie on before they made that trade. They had Cole, they had Herman, they had Kluber, they had, uh, Montgomery and they had an open fifth spot that I guess was TBD, you know, maybe that would have been. Uh, among the guys, there's just maybe that would have been Garcia, maybe that would have been Schmidt, maybe that would have been someone else. But if nothing else, he filled a rotation spot that they needed filled and has done it well. So that's a success. He right now is the best non-Garrett Cole pitcher on that team. That's a huge success. And he signed for next season cheaply to build on that future success. That's a huge success. I think that's a trade that's a win all the way around for Brian Cashman. Even though he did have to get up some, give up some good prospects to get Ty on, but... Certainly, Tyon is, is going to help the team this year and next year when those prospects were unlikely unlikely to do that whatsoever. Hmm. Um, Fernando Tatis Jr., preparing to play in the outfield? What do you make of this, John? Uh, why not? I mean, if he's on the injured list and it's not going to hurt his shoulder to, to just try it out, why not uh, go for it? I do think it's an interesting idea if they do feel like they want... Uh, Adam Frazier in the lineup on a more regular basis playing second I guess would be the idea because they would put Jake Cronenworth at um, sorry at, at shortstop the question is for me is if you decide to put Tatis in the outfield more I mean and because this this Padres lineup is very modular you can kind of move pieces all over the place and I, I have to imagine one this is being done because they Maybe the Padres are a little worried about Tommy Pham and Trent Grisham currently slumping and Will Myers, you know, being basically league average and nothing better at this point. Uh, Their backup outfield plans really haven't worked. They got Jake Marisnik at the deadline, but he is pretty much just a glove at this point. Jerickson Profar is hurt. They just recently dumped Jorge Mateo. 
And they've also cut a lot of the prospects out of their system who might have been able to come. I mean, uh, Taylor Trammell would probably be the biggest name we would have been able to help, maybe. But their best backup outfielder right now is Brian O'Grady, and that's not really what you want. So I can understand that they might want to add that depth there anyway. The only problem you run into is now you're starting Eric Hosmer on the regular at first base, or maybe it's some kind of rotating system between Hosmer, I guess platoon you could call it, between Hosmer and Myers or something. Um, also, to point out, really doesn't help that Haseon Kim has struggled so badly in his transition to, to Major League Baseball. So I, I get it. You want to find another way to get Tatis's bat in the lineup while also uh, being able to spell Fam Grisham or Myers as need be. It's not ideal. I really, I, I, I never liked the idea of playing a franchise guy out of position. Uh, the odds of him hurting himself increase trying to learn that new position. And for as much as maybe the Padres feel like if he's not playing shortstop where there's, you know, maybe he can protect his shoulder. I don't really know how that works. There's plenty of diving in the outfield, too. I'd be way more worried he's going to hurt himself on a misattempted dive anyway. And I'm pretty sure uh, Tatis has suffered both those shoulder injuries while as a hitter, both swinging and sliding into a base. So I, I don't really know that there's anything defensively, <clears throat> excuse me, defensively that, that'll protect him. I mean, why not? You might as well see if he can do it. Uh, at some point, he will need to move off shortstop anyway in like 10 years. So you might as well see what he's capable of doing. And it certainly does give your roster that much more flexibility if you can, you know, if you need to put him in the outfield for an inning or two, um, you can do that. But I have to imagine when Tatis is healthy, they're just going to say screw it and give shortstop back to him and just start. And honestly, it's easier too to put Frazier in the outfield if that's really what they want to do. But it, it doesn't hurt to increase your positional flexibility. I'm always just scared of doing it with a guy like Tatis. It's like you're just it just feels to me like you're just upping the chances he's going to suffer a hideous, hideous injury. That said, he also may do some incredibly cool trout stuff out there. So. Yeah, that, that might be worth it. Well, this is always going to be a weird fit, right? Like, this is something that they had to... You would expect A.J. Preller had a plan when you're going to make a move for Frazier, and we were wondering how this would work, um, both in the infield and the outfield. So, I don't know. I, I don't think it would be a big thing long-term, but if it's another <clears> thing, too, <throat> it's just reps for Tatis out there if they need to down the line, right? It just makes him more versatile, and versatility is a, is a nice thing, especially for somebody like Tatis, but... I will miss if he's in the outfield a bit. The double jumps. We we do not get a double jump opportunity. The thing, I, I, I think he's still going to be the regular shortstop because they mm. don't have a shortstop better than him. I think they just want to see, can you play the outfield? Yes, great. That gives us some options down the road if we have to make some weird pinch hitting or defensive replacement uh, stuff or if someone gets hurt. Now at least we know you have the ability to do it. And I think that's useful too because there's also the possibility, what if one of Pham, Grisham, or Myers gets hurt over the next month and a half of the season. Well, now you're down an outfielder. Maybe you play Frazier out there, but maybe it's also an opportunity to do like what the Cubs did with Chris Bryant and say, hey, you can play the infield, and now you can play the outfield, and that gives us the flexibility to put a guy like Frazier at another position. True, true. Um, Clayton Kershaw, Danny Duffy, to the 60-day IL for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Is this a problem for L.A.? No, because Kershaw should be back at some point in September. I think the only problem is if he's out beyond that. Duffy was only ever going to be a reliever arm for them, which certainly useful. But he's the thing. The the thing I imagine the Dodgers have to be frustrated about with Duffy is that he's only really going to have about two weeks to prove that he belongs on the team in some capacity or another as a reliever, um, in order to make the playoff roster that they're going to have. And that's not a whole lot of time to evaluate a reliever, especially one coming off an injury who you don't necessarily want to rush into 
you know, three games in a row and see how they do. So that's probably got to be frustrating for the Dodgers, and it's certainly not great for Duffy, who is running the risk that if, you know, you know, if he gets off to a slow start when he get, does get back on that roster, or if he or if he has a setback and can't make it back, that his whole season might be done at this point. But um, that's obviously a minor loss to the Dodgers. A bigger one would be if Kershaw were, were had some kind of setback. But assuming he's back by September, I, th- I think the Dodgers should be fine. Relative, relatively fine. We'll see. Scherzer also. You're not going to believe this, John. Been very good um, in Los Angeles. He might be okay. Shocking. He might be all right. Uh, old friend Luis Robert. Uh, for your Chicago White Sox returns activated, what do you what do you make of Robert's turn return in Chicago? Uh, obviously, really big for two reasons. One is the center field defense, um, obviously, and not just the center field defense, but what it means for that outfield, especially now that Eloy Jimenez is back too. They have that outfield finally that they were supposed to at the start of the season. No more Adam Engel or less Adam Engel, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Uh, less Adam Engel, less Billy Hamilton, who I know is mm-hmm. hurt, less 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 Larry Garcia, less of all those guys who have been such drains offensively and who do not have the fielding prowess except for Hamilton and Engel that Robert does. Um, at the very least, Brian Goodwin helped. So cheers to Brian Goodwin. But that's obviously the big thing is having him back in the lineup, having him back in center field, just having him there in the um, as a base-stealing threat as a power threat, obviously makes their lineup um, deeper, uh, gives it an extra dimension. But yeah, definitely what he does in terms of stabilizing that outfield, especially now that they do have Aloy back and are playing Aloy in the in the outfield, uh, that they do need Robert out there basically to be his minder, uh, because as we're all aware, Aloy Jimenez is an absolutely brutal defensive outfielder. But this also means now that, I mean, I... I think the question with the, with the White Sox now is what do they do with right field, which has just never been settled since they finally dumped Adam Eaton uh, back in July, or I believe in some point in June. I can't remember exactly. I know in July. Um, they've mostly tried out a combination of Lurie Garcia, Brian Goodwin, and the since-demoted Gavin Sheets there. Maybe this is something where Andrew Vaughn has drawn the majority of the starts in left. Maybe now that Jimenez is back, they, put, they try him out in right. Uh, maybe they have him share time with Goodwin and Garcia there, because uh, of course Garcia and Goodwin have really nowhere else to play. Although I guess Garcia, I mean I think Garcia makes the most sense as a utility infielder, but that's not clearly what what Tony Larusa believes. Um, the other option too is that they keep just DHing Jimenez when they have the opportunity, because obviously that was Yermin Mercedes, but he is gone now. Um, that opens up left field just to be Vaughn's full time. Which I think is also good for the White Sox to get a better, get him regular at bats, to get a better sense of who he is as a player, because obviously it's a number three pick from two from two or three years ago. That's a guy they really need for their future. But just in terms of Robert's impact, yes, it's huge. He's another. He's a great bat. He takes over center field, helps figure out some of that outfield conundrum, makes the White Sox that much more dangerous for September or for October. I know. I don't know if you're still in as much on the White Sox now post Craig Kimbrell and now that Robert and, and Aloy are back, but. Boy, does this team look super, super scary for anyone who has to deal with them in October, even with Carlos Rodon on the DL today. I thought it was interesting because um, I was reading uh, Jesse Rogers' piece about how it went down. Did you know this was like the first time they'd hugged Kenny Williams and uh, Rick Hahn in like 20 years or something when that deal got completed? And That's upsetting. Yeah, not a lot of great memories there. But uh, also, they consulted with Liam beforehand. 
and they were like, "Hey, we we've been wanting Kimbrel." And they they wanted Kimbrel for a while, apparently, but um, they I guess there was concerns about the Chicago tax of trading him across the rivals because I think Theo requested a Chicago tax, um, or he had to pay a Chicago tax. Who was it that they traded for a couple years ago during their run? Who? What White Sox did they trade for? The Cubs. Yeah. Um, Jose Quintana. That's, that's what it was. Yes. Up. That's how that that's how the White Sox got Aloy. Right, along right. With right. Um, and they had to pay a tax, so they had to pay a little bit more to trade across town, and that was the same with Kimbrough a little bit. But um, I do think it's interesting. Uh, I think the fact that Liam was okay with it is important. Um, Kimbrell, getting to Kimbrell and then Liam is just going to be going to be difficult. Like, if they're both healthy and if Rundung comes back and um, Rodon, excuse me, comes back, I think they'll be they'll be scary, but... I don't know. It's also just that, like, the AL as a whole, outside of the surging Oakland A's, who are, like, are they two games back at the Astros right now? Or three? Um, I believe it's three. I'm just going to double-check okay. out of curiosity. But, yeah, the the A's are... And I, I know I talked about this before. I really liked what the A's did with their with mm. their deadline. But, yeah, they're... That's it. You can never write the A's off. Never, ever write the A's off. Every time we do that, this is what they do. They well, that's what right I'm saying. So, it. like, the AL is completely unsettled. So, although I had my questions about the White Sox, Oakland's the Yankees bad. have questions, the Rays have no pitching, the Blue Jays have a great offense, but no pitching, you got the the White Sox are right there, but like, the A's are surging, the Astros I thought were the best team in the AL, but we'll we'll see, they're dealing with some stuff too, like, I, I'm still betting on the Astros, you know what they could use right now, a first baseman, they could, uh, they could use that at the moment, but um, I don't know, I think it's very much I mean, up it, in the air. It's all, but I think that's all a good way of saying too that it's like of all the teams in the central, all the teams in the AL you feel best about right now is Chicago. Yeah, I would even agree. though they're not the best team by record, even though they 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 probably, I mean, in, you know, but like yeah, you look at that roster and you're like you're very well set up for the playoffs. You are very clearly going to win this division without even trying at this point. They're ten and a half games up on on Cleveland, and I, I doubt that that gap is going to close. You know they're they're the most well set up for the postseason. They have a roster that's built for the postseason at this point with Hendricks and Kimbrel. Yeah, I'm. If I'm, I, I I do not want to be the team to meet them in the first round. I really, really do not want to be the team that has to deal with uh, Giolito and ideally a healthy Rodone and Lance Lynn one two three or in whatever um, whatever they whatever they're deployed. Oh, and every time that the White Sox have a late lead after the seventh inning or even after the sixth inning, you're done. Yeah. Good luck. That's gonna be a really that's gonna be a really hard thing for other teams to figure out. I agree. The last thing I want to touch on today, John, the New York Mets, another team, really, really just free falling with just historically bad offense. The GM not happy uh, with how mediocre this team has been all year, not being able to break through. Injuries obviously been a part of that. Syndergaard looks like he's gonna be coming out of the bullpen when he comes back, um, but you know just typical Mets stuff where they just there's no reason they don't win the NLEs but John do you recall you raising an eyebrow and pushing back so hard when I was like I mean if I had to guess who wins the NLEs this year the Phillies just feel like the most realistic one do you remember do you remember our Phillies back and forth where I was like too much top end talent Dabrowski's gonna want to win there I mean I don't you don't believe in the, in the White Sox. I don't believe in the Phillies one bit. The Phillies are winning the NL East, John. 
but that doesn't i don't think them winning the analyst is a sign of them actually being any good and more just oh i'm not disagreeing with that but i was just like i think they're the last team standing like i just for whatever reason and ian kennedy's been good for them kyle gibson filling the joe blanton role but um i don't know the phillies are just uh i think they're most well positioned to to win they're the the most healthy and competent team currently standing Mm -hmm. which is terrifying on in both ways Mm -hmm. to me really it's just i don't understand i mean i understand how the mets got to where they are because they they had a lot of injuries but to me it's that similar vein as the red sox is then why didn't you do more at the deadline yeah javi baez was was a was a perfectly fine pickup like i'm not i'm not a huge fan of javi baez in general but he filled the need and he's going to make for an awesome uh, double play partner with with Lindor once the two of them are healthy and obviously he has some power in his bat and can help you out there although at this point he really has just become the rich man's Ray Ordonez oh no he really yeah it's, it's really not good with Javi Baez in terms of offense well it's also not good with Francisco Lindor which is the elephant in the room you just paid Lindor and he's been awful and oh, hurt that's what that's saying they moved Baez to second base and mm. he's a free agent at the end of the season so he's gone I can't imagine the the Mets are going to bring him back unless he explicitly says I will be a second baseman and I because I want to play with against uh, alongside my uh my friend and countryman mm. uh sort of kind of but yeah I I I, I think especially pitching wise you had a team that was just desperate for any pitching help and the best the Mets did was Trevor Williams and you have a team that just seems to be very poorly managed, just very poorly run. I mean, that story that came out the other day, the Mets GM blaming his own players for not drinking enough water, and that's why they were suffering so many soft tissue injuries. I don't understand how ownership of this team has changed, but nothing else seems to be different. It is, for all intents and purposes, the same Mets bullshit that we have been watching for the last 20 years under the Wilpons. Nothing changed. The only, the only difference is the guy signing the checks, apparently who also seems to be his own level of, at least he's not the Wilpons, but Steve Cohen does seem to be his own level of kind of clueless Steve Ballmer, Mark Cuban-esque kind of boob, who is just who just needs to shut the hell up and go away, pretty much. I, I don't particularly understand why he's still yapping on Twitter about things. It, it just looks incredibly stupid right now, and just very kind of silly, but... Hey, that's that's the Mets. That is just perpetually the Mets. It's just stupid and silly and doing stuff that they don't ever have to be doing. Hmm. Is that it? Do you think Rojas survives? Is he the fall guy? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I think he's the fall guy. I, I think if the Mets miss the playoffs, they need to clean house. The manager needs to go, and I think Sandy Alderson and his people need to go. It'll be interesting. Cohen seems like somebody he's going to be hard to read, that he's just not going to be patient. He's going to be like, no, we're... we're yeah. This is I don't think you can be. I don't think you can be patient after a season like this. I understand there's some stuff like Jacob Degrom getting hurt is not something you can control. Um, Blindor getting hurt and also struggling when he was healthy is not something you can control, etc. But there has been a. The, the feels like there's just been this total lack of urgency since the Mets found themselves in that situation where they were starting a bullpen game seemingly every other day and relying on guys like Tyler McGill and having to trade for Rich Hill's 41-year-old ass, it, it just doesn't really seem like there has been that urgency on the part of the Mets to fix the situation. And I think the way they handled the deadline, where you just, they did the, the usual Mets thing, where you just heard every reporter saying the Mets are in on everyone, but they think the prices are too high, and they like the guys they have. It's like, okay, so you're already setting us up for them doing nothing. You can't go into that deadline with a new owner worth $13 billion, or however much Steve Cohen is, and spend the whole time complaining about prices. You can't do that. You have to understand that, like, yeah, fine, you got to pay the price. Okay, fine. This is what we need to win? Okay, fine. You're a billionaire. 
What are you waiting for? And to me, it just feels like, yes, if, if the Mets miss the playoffs, I think Rojas is gone for sure. I've, I've, I think he's a pretty mediocre manager, and he hasn't really shown anything this year to suggest he's anything other than replacement level at best. And I think Alderson and anyone associated with Alderson should probably go too. And that's not even beyond, beyond even the baseball stuff. The, what, the way Alderson handled the Jared Porter stuff, yeah. the, Mickey Ald, the, the Mickey Calloway stuff, Everything surrounding both of those embarrassments um, just suggests that he is not particularly in touch with how the game works, not just with how the game works nowadays, with how just culture and society work nowadays. And it seems like his his time with the Mets was was just, I, I don't know, it just feels like this is a relationship that needs to end at this point, that Alderson is doing nothing but really just kind of bringing negative attention to the Mets at this point. And, and I'm really struggling to see what exactly he's bringing to the table in a positive factor because, again, we just got through a deadline where all the Mets did was add Javi Baez and a fifth starter. And that just can't be enough. That's just not enough. I, again, I think Javi Baez was a, useful, was a useful guy to add, but he's not solving the majority of the problems that the Mets have at the moment. Yeah. I don't know. Bad things in New York Mets land. But I can't say I feel all that bad, John. No, Braves are I mean, right like, there. The Braves it's, are... It's, it's the Mets. This is what we're used to. I just... The only thing I feel bad for is that you change ownership like this, and it's still the same circus no matter what. Well, I think the Which difference, again, though, is... There are elements inside the team that predate Cohen that need to go at this point. I think Cohen's going to be aggressive. I just... And the other thing is, like, if you're an owner, don't you want everyone in on that team in any, in any, in any position of power to be someone you handpicked? I know he picked Alderson. I know he brought Alderson in... To, to help him with the bid to give to give him the the, the veneer of professional baseball guy because Alderson's been around forever and is clearly popular with the owners but yeah I, I think at this point it's like no you don't you don't need that hold you don't need that guy holding your hand anymore and if anything Alderson seems to be dragging him down the wrong and again, I I don't know the the internal workings in the Mets for all I know Cohen is a meddling moron along the lines of Artie Moreno but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I do think he's going to clear house after the season because there's just been too much Wilpon era Mets nonsense this year. And if he's serious about turning around this team and making it a winner, he needs to get rid of that root and stem. It all needs to go. Yeah, I agree. John, what can we check out from you this week and on Fangraphs.com? Uh, Fangraphs this week, more of the same as we continue through those dog days of August. We'll have a... A, from Dan Samborski he's going to use he's, he's got this series called Zips Time Warp where he uses his Zips projection system to go back and see how players careers would have turned out without these kind of big turning point moments of injury or career interruption uh, we're going to run one tomorrow from him on J.R. Richard who just passed away a week ago one of the great fireball hurlers at the 70s when he was on the Astros um, we'll also have a piece coming on Tatis's outfield defense if that's a topic you guys are interested in learning more about and just how that might play out uh, other than that, just come on by to Fangraphs, the usual stuff, to use our fun stats. And if you're not a member, sign up to become a member. $20 a year or $50 for ad-free helps us keep the lights on, keep the content running. Everything we do, we do it for you. Sound like a song there at the end. Yeah, it kind of got it like a, a la a Job and Franklin. Mm. It ain't easy. Oh, God, cut off. Yeah. Um... Ruin the act, Job. <laughs> oh man that's what i fall asleep to every night love it so much uh john taylor we can follow you on twitter at j taylor thank you as always my friend i will talk to you next week
All right, later, man.